Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Follow along as I read aloud God's word to us this morning, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory." Let's pray together. Father, we come as your children, as your church, humbly before the Word, and we pray that it would do its work in us. Every last one of us here would hear. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what is your Scripture, your Word to us now. Our aim is to come and to behold this wondrous mystery. And we pray that as we review themes that perhaps we've heard before, as we learn new themes that we've never heard before, I pray that we would universally together glory in what we see, knowing it is able to transform and change us into the very image of Christ so we can walk and be all that you call us to be as your children. Teach us now by your Spirit's power. In Christ we pray. Amen. On January 9th, 2007, in San Francisco, California, a captivated audience awaited the grand reveal by the iconic tech innovator Steve Jobs as he took the stage for the keynote address at the annual Macworld conference. Wearing his classic outfit of tennis shoes and jeans and a black turtleneck and pacing casually back and forth across the stage, he begins his speech by saying, every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. Some of us are lucky enough to experience one or two of them in our lifetimes, but today, 
we are releasing three of them. Now, some of you are thinking, ugh, classic Apple hype up. It's nauseating. Well, they're good at it. Jobs continues, and he explains to the audience how he's been secretly working on this project for two and a half years, and he's certain it's going to change the future. He slowly reveals these three revolutionary things. He says, we have for you today a widescreen iPod with touch controls. We have a mobile phone, and we have a revolutionary internet communicator. It sounds kind of like Star Trek or something from <laughs> decades ago. But he starts repeating these things one after another. He says, an iPod, a mobile phone, an internet communicator. And he starts repeating them one after another until slowly people start to applaud and they get what he's saying. They're not three new revolutionary devices. They are one. One new thing. And there's no doubt Steve Jobs was accurate when he predicted that this new innovation would indeed change the future as multiple things were now consolidated into a single thing, into a single new and better device. So in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's very likely that chapter 3, which we've just read a portion of, would have arrested the attention of the listener as much as any other section in the whole letter. And it may not have the same effect on us today, because in large part we have come to take for granted the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles into a single unified family. We hear Steve Jobs' speech a dozen years later, and it kind of sounds quaint to us. We might even laugh at how surprised this audience is to a dinosaur tech product by today's standards. And yet, the impact of what he unveiled that day endures. So in the text before us today, I want us to marvel at the unveiling of the mystery of the gospel, both for what it is and for what it does. So in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, we see the mystery of the gospel revealed as Paul unwraps the news of Gentiles being fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then in verses 7 through 13, we see the mystery of the gospel in action what it does, what it brings into effect, what it accomplishes. It displays for all the visible and invisible realms to witness the eternal, infinite wisdom of God going public through the church. And in this unveiled mystery ought to lead believers to a bold, confident access to God through Christ. So Paul begins in verse 1 with the phrase, for this reason, which is to say that he's about to build upon previous groundwork that he's laid in chapter 2. I'm thankful that Brian read the end of chapter 2 for us earlier so that we have some remembrance of Paul's line of thinking here. So let's take a moment and just review some of the significant themes that Paul's been explaining and building upon that brings us to this point in chapter 3. In chapter 1, Paul opens his epistle with this hymn, 
And feel free to kind of flip through these early chapters as you see us walking through to refresh your thinking. Paul opens this epistle with a hymn praising each member of the Godhead for their unique and their critical role in salvation. We sang a summary of verses 3 through 14 in the song, Come, Praise, and Glorify. God the Father predestined and chose us before the foundation of the world. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He lavished His grace upon us, making known to us the mystery of His will and securing for us this eternal inheritance. And then the Spirit has sealed us in His gracious gospel and is Himself the guarantee of that eternal inheritance. How else ought we to respond? Well, the threefold refrain to the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of God's glorious grace. Chapter 1 ends with Paul's prayer asking the Father of glory to give the spirit of wisdom to the Ephesian believers so the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened to know the hope to which they've been called. And Paul writes, wanting these Christians to have their eyes opened to see God's power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places so He might rule supremely as head over all things, especially as head of His body, the church. And in chapter 2, Paul plays a bit of a memory game with us. He says, remember that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, a slave-like follower to this world and the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Remember how you once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, living by the code. If it feels good, just do it. Living life in the bullseye, though, sadly, of God's divine wrath, and we couldn't care less. Nevertheless, remember, he implores us, how God, being rich in mercy and because of His great love, made us alive, resurrected us from our deadness, and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And for what purpose? So He might show off the immeasurable riches of God's grace. And it's by grace that we've been saved. And it's for the broadcasting of God's grace that we've been redeemed. And what does that look like? Paul answers, through a life of good works that testify to the fact that we are God's workmanship. We bear His image. We look like Him in the world. And Paul's memory game continues in the latter half of chapter 2. Remember, you Gentiles were called the uncircumcision and were at a former time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without God, without hope in the world. Nevertheless, remember that now in Jesus you have been brought near through Christ's blood. Peace has been made for us through Christ's broken body. Jesus has created one new man in place of the two. Jesus has opened up access in one spirit to the Father. And Jesus has made strangers and aliens into fellow citizens and members of God's household. 
equal participants in God's cosmic temple building project. Did you catch all that? Did you catch it? Paul assumes that as a Gentile, which is probably all of us here this morning, you'll not only care to know about these things, he expects you to be responding with with jaw-dropping amazement at the very notion that these realities, these promises are for you. That would have astonished the first century readers. As chapter 3 begins, Paul now elaborates on the mystery of the gospel, plainly telling us what it is. But before he does that, in verses 1 through 4, and before reveling in God's eternal, wise plan of redemption, Paul seems to want his readers to remember that his imprisonment, his current situation, is for Christ. And you might expect him to identify himself as a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of Caesar or something negative about this government that just bothers him, that just is breathing down his neck and is impeding what he would hope to do otherwise for the sake of the gospel. Would anyone choose to be bound to a Roman guard, especially if you're the Apostle Paul? I don't think so. And yet, even under house arrest, Paul knows As he'll write in 2 Timothy 2, even though I am bound with chains as a criminal, the word of God is not bound. In verses 2 through 4, Paul assumes his readers have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that he's been given. And not to be taken in a proud sense, but Paul assumes that his insights into the mystery of Christ are able to be perceived. This is unique. This is special. This is not Paul saying, though, hey... I'm elite here. I hope you guys know this. Can't you guys tell I'm no small-town sideshow? I'm, I'm, I'm significant. He's not at all saying this by drawing our attention to, to himself in this, in this verse. Not at all. This is made more clear in verses 7 through 8 as he circles back to this idea. But Paul says he was made to see the mystery of Christ, not of his own brilliance, and he was quite brilliant, but by revelation. And we presume this is a reference to Paul's conversion experience on the Damascus Road as he dramatically encounters the risen Christ and is converted and is then discipled in the days to follow. And we see his explanation here of the mystery in verses 5 and 6. This mystery was unknown to earlier generations, but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So whatever this mystery is, we see very clearly that it has been hidden from all previous generations. As Matthew Henry notes, it is called the mystery of Christ because it was revealed by him and because it relates so very much to him. Other passages help elucidate our understanding. Uh, Paul writes at the beginning of, of Galatians, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So this mystery was given by Christ. It is about Christ by revelation. In similar language, Paul writes in Colossians 1, 
I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to His saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is this mystery? Here, Paul says it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Ephesians 3, Paul says in verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, sometimes we can get tripped up by this word mystery because we tend to use it in different ways. Uh, For instance, we might speak of the mystery of the Trinity, uh, which is a religious truth that we uh, can never fully understand. We recognize mystery to that doctrine. We may speak of the problem of evil's existence in the world as being a mystery involving answers only fully known to the mind of God that we can only know in part. Generically speaking, in non-Bible context, we might even use the word mystery to simply refer to something that's just hard to understand. It's kind of difficult. It's challenging to wrap our minds around. Well, Paul's use here has more going on. It's different. What Paul is saying here is that the mystery of the gospel was at one time a collection of promises, sometimes faint promises, true as ever, but unclear as to their precise details, and is only discerned and understood by revelation. So the excitement, the overflowing joy, the uncontainable desire in Paul to preach arises from the clarity that has come and is coming as things are being pieced together and he's understanding, wow, oh, I see now. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Jesus is Isaiah's suffering servant who bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. He is the anguished soul who is righteous and yet justifies the many and intercedes for transgressors. He is the wonderful, merciful Savior, the Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's not merely Israel's history that's coming to fruition here. It is humanity's history as the second Adam has come for all who are in Him. They escape the wrath of God and they enjoy the fullness of life with God. If only we could return to Paul's privileged moment in time, we'd sense a little bit more of this. We would sense the overwhelming nature of this long-awaited mystery that has been revealed in Jesus and by revelation to Him. Wow. As one commentator writes, he says, Mysteries are truths hidden from human knowledge or understanding, but now disclosed by revelation of God, by the revelation of God. So I wonder, though, if some of those gathered here this morning still do not perceive the mystery of Christ, even in spite of the fact that it's been unveiled for some 2,000 years. Now, sure, you might understand the facts of what Christianity claims and what it lays itself out to teach, but in terms of your heart, 
and having eyes of faith to see and to believe, you'd have to say, that's, that's not me. And just as Paul's unveiling of the mystery of Christ required revelation from God, the Scriptures tell us also that man's natural disposition, his natural spiritual disposition since birth is to be veiled to spiritual things. Paul writes elsewhere to the Corinthians, he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, They're foolishness, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And we know that no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them and opens their eyes. So perhaps God is opening your eyes slowly, and things are still cloudy, perhaps like the blind man that Jesus healed in Mark chapter 8, who at first saw, uh, only saw people who looked like trees walking around, but after staying longer and feeling Jesus' healing touch a second time on his eyes, his eyes were opened and his sight was restored. The mystery of the gospel has been unveiled some 2,000 years ago, and by sheer grace alone, it is reaching your ears this morning. That is not a coincidence. That is grace from God to you. Will you linger with Jesus? Allow Him to grant you eyes of faith and a transformed heart that welcomes the merits of this crucified and risen Savior if you'll humbly ask Him to forgive you of your sin. And we have seen that this gospel is in verses 5 and 6, as Paul uh, clearly tells us, it is Christ's uniting work of Jews and Gentiles in Himself and to one another. Some call this a, a double union, to Christ, which necessarily means to one another. This might raise the question, though, in our minds as to how did God unite Jews with Gentiles under the Old Covenant before Christ? Well, the Old Testament tells us in a number of places of God's heart for the nations. God's covenant with Abraham promised that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's posterity. Even prior to Israel's being constituted as a nation at Mount Sinai, the Hebrew slaves that God delivered through the Red Sea included a mixed multitude of Egyptians with the Hebrew people who trusted in Yahweh. Psalm 2 teaches us how the Messiah would receive the nations as His inheritance. And time and time again, even especially in Isaiah, Israel is commissioned to go and be a light to the nations, drawing them to the hope of Yahweh. Even Jesus, at the time He delivers the Great Commission to His disciples, He's calling them to go and to make disciples of every nation. And yet, what is still a mystery is the radical nature of this plan. So rather than, than bringing a battering ram-like army to abolish Israel's enemies, as so many would have thought, it was unanticipated that Jesus would become the battered sacrifice whose torn flesh would tear down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. It was unforeseen how Jesus would abrogate the Mosaic law 
bringing it, uh, making it no longer necessary for Gentiles to essentially become Jews in order to know the blessings of the covenant. Now, under the new covenant, Jew and Gentile have equal footing, and they enjoy the same proximity and nearness to God because it is through Christ's blood. So we have seen what this mystery is. Now let's see what this mystery does. In verses 7 through 13, we see the mystery of the gospel in action. In verses 7 and 8, we see Paul's description once again of his, his ministry. He says, once more, Paul references his ministry and his, his privilege to proclaim these truths as being a gift of God's grace by the working of God's power. He assesses his own standing as the least of all the saints, but nevertheless he attributes it to grace alone as the reason he was appointed to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And this Christ-focused, Christ-centered preaching was to bring to light for everyone the plan of God of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So perhaps similar to Steve Jobs' prerogative that he had as, as creator of this device to keep under wraps for two and a half years his plan to unveil the iPhone, knowing full well how it may revolutionize the world. As our creator of all things, our sovereign Lord chose to keep the full-scale glory of the gospel under wraps for ages until the appointed time for it to be brought into the light. This mystery is profound in what it declares, but it's even more grand in what it is able to accomplish and what it does. What will God do through the unveiling of the mystery of Christ? What is God aiming to get done through Paul's preaching? Well, he answers this in verses 10 through 13, where we see the effects of this revealed mystery. As Paul brings into the light the hidden plan of God, unveiling the mystery of the gospel, the results are that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what Paul's saying is that the revelation of God's wisdom before all the hostile principalities and authorities and rulers and powers in the heavenly places is accomplished through the church. God's wisdom here is profound. It is manifold, as Paul writes. It's multifaceted. It's many-colored. Paul combines two adjectives here, much and, and varied or diverse. It's the only time he uses this in the New Testament. And it's appropriate for describing the endless aspects of God's wisdom in redemption. God's forever family is a multicolored tapestry of divine grace, a family drawn from every tribe and tongue and nation. This wisdom of God is like a diamond so large that it could be turned forever and it would not exhaust the brilliance of each and every new viewpoint. This is God's manifold wisdom that is set on display through the church. 
Notice, however, the absence of any clear call to the church to say or to do or to pronounce or to rebuke these principalities and powers. God is clearly the implied chief actor who's making it known. He is making it known that He has demonstrably defeated every spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. Later in chapter 6, Paul will remind us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, over spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So even though our spiritual warfare is against these very foes, these very opponents, in the context of chapter 3 here, it's as if they stand stunned silent. Oh no, we never saw that coming. God's wisdom leaves them speechless. As one writer notes, he says, the hostile powers had sought to frustrate the work of God and believed that they had succeeded when they conspired against Christ and brought about His crucifixion. But unwittingly, they had been mere instruments in God's plans. The death of Christ had been the very means He had devised for the accomplishment of this plan. So it is here declared that the hostile powers, after their brief apparent triumph, had now become aware of a divine wisdom they had never dreamed of. They saw the church arising as the result of Christ's death and giving effect to what they could now perceive to have been the hidden purpose of God. Charles Bridges writes at the beginning of his book, The Christian Ministry, he says, The church is the mirror, the whole effulgence of His divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfections of Jehovah are displayed to the universe. Verses 11 through 12, it makes clear that this unveiled mystery was indeed the eternal purpose of God revealed in Christ Jesus. And it's in Him now that we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Jesus. So for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, there is a freedom to access the Father that exceeds what was possible under the Old Covenant. Our boldness to approach God is, is not this brash spirit or an arrogant presumptuousness, but access to speak freely, openly, and without restraint. We have access to God through Jesus, who purifies us forever through His blood. And unlike the Old Covenant, which made such unhindered access impossible, the only condition of these benefits is whether we have appropriated the finished work of Christ. And if that's true of you, come boldly, now and often and regularly. Finally, and as Paul writes in verse 13, he notes that his, the suffering that he's enduring in Rome should not be cause for too much discouragement of heart for his Ephesian brothers and sisters even in spite of the fact that he's been under house arrest for three, perhaps going on four years now. Because Paul knows. Why is this? Paul knows that 
suffering in the here and now is simply the road to glory. Suffering and glory are oftentimes paired in the New Testament. Paul writes in, a few, in, in Romans chapter 8, he says, If you're children, then you're heirs. And heirs of God, then fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. In his last epistle that he writes before his death, in 2 Timothy 2, he writes, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul suffers with eternity in mind. He knows full well the glory that awaits his fellow brothers and sisters, and so he gladly suffers for their eternal joy. So as we take this text before us and we ask the Spirit of God what He would have us glean from it, just a few questions that we can reflect on together this morning. First of all, and perhaps most significant, do you fully grasp the centrality of the church in God's cosmic eternal plan of redemption? I mean, in all reality, this is the crux of Paul's point at the beginning of chapter 3, and it's what's most significant that every one of us grasps from this text. Are you theologically and scripturally convinced that the church is the epicenter of God's work in the world throughout all time? Or has perhaps American individualism convinced you that Christianity is exclusively summarized in my personal relationship with Jesus. Now, it's not less than that, but it's far more than just that. Are you stunned to know that Satan and all the forces of darkness stand dumbfounded at God's ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven church through which God's wisdom is showcased more than anywhere else? If God thinks this way about his church that has to impact the way you think about his church it simply must transform our thinking have you perhaps allowed the 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 ancillary things of life the things that that ought to be there and and structurally supporting what goes in the middle but but the things that are in our lives uh, perhaps on the perimeter have they started to creep in and perhaps displace and push out what you know ought to be at the center of your life? A love for the gospel that's manifest in a love for Christ's church and its cause in the earth. Now, this can happen, this crowding out effect, this bringing in what ought never to be in the center into the center. This can happen in a thousand different ways the things of life that are supposed to encourage or supplement what is central end up pushing out the main thing altogether. This could be work, family, sports, side interests, or even good things such as volunteer efforts here and there. Our health, your health will wane. Your job schedules will fluctuate. Your, the size of your family will continue to grow, perhaps bringing new challenges, and on and on. In those situations, don't feel a twinge of false guilt in what is the, the uncontrollables of life. 
But when our thinking, when our core philosophy and vision for how we see everything is aligned properly, we will press forward even through suffering like the Apostle Paul to see the glory of God's wisdom in the gospel and to pray seeing it go forth through us and through the church for the sake of Christ. Perhaps in a different sense, you, as it's sometimes called, have been burned by the church. And that has caused you to say, you know what, I don't really know why I'm here this morning, but I'm, I'm done with the church. Know this. Know that God sees in full what you only see in part. In other words, the legitimate hypocrisy, sin, and hurt that you may have experienced is just the tip of the iceberg. God knows it all, and yet He has not abandoned His church. Should we? Secondly, do you fully grasp your union with Christ, which is that double union with Christ and to one another? Galatians 3, verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So if you're trusting in the gospel, our salvation unites us as members of the same spiritual family, receiving the same spiritual blessings, claiming loyalty to the same King of kings and Lord of lords. And Paul has already told us in Ephesians chapter 2 that believers are members of God's household and they are a part of God's ever-expanding temple being built together into a dwelling place of God by His Spirit. Can we keep growing in our ability to see one another through this lens? That your identity is different as a child of God. You're fundamentally seen as a brother and sister in the Lord, a sharer of an eternal inheritance. That radically changes all the normal ways in which people estimate one another and the value they perceive in reaching out. Can we keep a mentality aligned with it, even as how Peter writes in 1 Peter, he says, with sincere brotherly love, keep loving one another fervently with pure hearts. Last question, do you fully grasp your privilege to approach God in Christ. So proof of a believer's grasp on the gospel is demonstrated through prayer. If a Christian never desires to approach God in prayer, it's appropriate that we question whether or not that individual has ever repented or has ever been granted eyes of faith. If nearness to God is not something that elicits even a spark of excitement in our hearts, it's appropriate that we should at least ask ourselves, so where exactly have I drifted? Where have I gone? We all want nearness to something to satisfy our thirsty souls. So what is it that has displaced God? 
for the downcast Christian this morning, take courage that Jesus has forgiven your sins. He loves you. He has lit up the attention of the cosmic universe to convince them of that fact and you of that fact. Do you believe or do not believe for a moment that his only concern is for the church at large on a corporate level, but you and your individual needs are too small, small scale, you know, piddly stuff. You don't have time for that. He's more about the church. Never make that error. Not at all. Run to God individually, collectively, as His people. Let's run to Him, coming boldly, coming confidently, because our access was purchased at so great a price. So through the power of God's Spirit, let's marvel together at the unveiling of this mystery that is Christ, both what it is and for what it does, and for how the wisdom of God is showcased through the church, and for the confident access we have to God through the blood of the crucified and risen Savior. Let's come boldly now as we pray together. Father, if we can trust an all-wise God to perfectly script redemptive history, perfectly, how can we not trust you with the stories of our lives? How much more will you perfectly care for us? Father, we have nothing to fear in light of the wisdom of God. We are safe in the shadow of the wisdom of God. For He has revealed in His time, He has brought into light the unsearchable riches of Christ, and we glory in it this morning. It is our only hope. Would you, Father, retool, rebuild, recalibrate our hearts so that we place at the center of our lives what is at the center of how you are taking forward your mission in the earth today to bring glory to yourself, not only in this earth, but for all the universe to behold. What a staggering thought. And how profoundly glad we are we are on your side. Oh God, for those that don't know you, I pray you would draw them to your, to your saving grace. Help them to have a holy hunger for redemption. Help them to long to be partakers of this divine nature, of this glorious inheritance, of the sharing in these precious and very great promises. We pray you'd glorify yourself as we live in the light of these things. In Christ we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us and take a moment to meditate on what we've heard this morning of the mystery of the gospel.